Hey guys, welcome back to Board Draw. This episode is eight, baby. Episode eight, yeah. And today we have a massive guest. We got a big guest. Yeah, we today. weren't lying when we said we had an exciting special guest last. Yeah, episode. just uh, it. It's a great forty-five minutes talking about football. We got Dan, otherwise known as HLTCO, on, and uh, we're going to be talking all things Palace. We're going to talk about all his, all how he got into football, everything. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Hey guys, so we are joined by our man Dan, otherwise known as HLTCO on Twitter, on Patreon, across the board. Big, big Palace fan here. Big We're Palace very ex- excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, Dan, how are you doing today, mate? I'm good, thanks. Yourselves? Yeah, not too bad. How are you dealing with the hot, hot weather at the moment? Oh, it's, it's an absolute nightmare, to be honest. I've it actually, is, it's I've hard got, to uh, like function. I've got an office that's like a loft conversion. In the oh, okay, house. that's and not ideal, is obviously it? Obviously, heat rises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm on a main <laughs> road, so even if you open the sort of skylight in the ceiling, there's often traffic that goes past, so it disrupts the microphone. So whenever I'm recording, it's a bit like I'm in a in a sauna, in a sweat box. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I mean, it's <laughs> suffer for the calls. You know what I mean? It is. Exactly. I saw you have a back and forth with a guy on Twitter saying that. 40 degrees in Greece is the same in England. And I was just thinking, what is he on about? Well, you know, I mean, that guy, I don't even know who he is. I know his name's Jeffrey Peel now. But other than that, the thing is, I genuinely sometimes question why I even get involved in conversations. I'm the same, though. Some things I see. Outside of football, because obviously people will go, just stick to football. And you're like, well, okay, but I'm a human being. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You're You're not allowed to have an opinion. (laughs) So in that particular instance, I just thought, well, you're talking rubbish and I'm going to tell you you're talking rubbish. And then I get, it's a strange thing because if you've only got 40 followers and you say the exact same thing, but it gets one like and one comment, they won't bother. But as soon as you've got a certain number of followers and you get a certain number of likes or retweets, it's almost as if people feel obligated to respond so you end up in a situation where i don't know you almost rather be able to go you're talking shit can you just leave it and (laughs) yeah but instead they almost want to fight their corner so you you sort of have to guard against it or at least go in sort of two-footed which is what i did yeah no i liked it we love a two-footed challenge when it is on twitter bring it back bring it back um so a bit about you dan um, obviously you've got a, a very decent Twitter following and um, you've got a Patreon where people can listen to your podcast talking about Palace and uh, general football. Um, do you just want to talk about how you got into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of give you a bit of a, a quick history of it. I mean, I'm 33 years old, pretty much from the age of about, I'd say, seven or eight. I wanted to get into writing about football. The whole thing was very romantic and intoxicating to me Uh, I can't tell you why exactly but it just always was I geared my whole education around it really my A-levels and everything else went on to do a degree in sport journalism but I mean I came out of uni in 2010 and by the time I'd done my three years I was a little bit I don't know what you'd call it really not disillusioned but a bit frustrated with the sport journalism industry because there's like the entrance a, routes and stuff. Well, yeah, because you've got quite a lot of nepotism that goes on. 100%. Or, or back patting, if you see what I mean. Like, yeah, it didn't yeah. matter 
how passionate you were about football or how good a writer you were. I went on numerous work experience placements and there were people there that would a nephew or a cousin or someone that was a sub-editor. And obviously that's the way of the world. Mm. But part of me was thinking, well, hang on, you know, if you're not being judged on your work rate and your ability to write, you're already starting 10 yards behind in a hundred meter race. Do you see yeah, what I'm saying? 100%. So, I mean, I could have gone down the route of coming out of uni and doing match reports on non-league football in South London and, and try to sort of claw my way up in that sense. But a large part of the reason that I'm so in love with football is because I go to Palace every week or at least every home game and as many away games as I can do. Uh, and I didn't want to stop going to Palace. So I sort of, more out of a, a passion and a hobby than anything else. In 2011, I just started writing about Palace. Different opinions I had, different thoughts. That then morphed into more of a, a news-based blog. Um, I put adverts on there, I think in about 2013, maybe 14. Uh, but with Google AdSense, I don't know if you're familiar with that whole model. Yeah, You've got about one or two pounds for every thousand views. And obviously, you know, it's nice to have some sort of income from it, but it was never going to support me for a living. Um, yeah. yeah. And I was always conscious of, you know, the clickbait that goes on because as much as people on social media rally against it, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mail, Talk Sports, Guy Sports News, and that like easy way of getting content and eyeballs on your website. Oh yeah, we had a chat about TalkSport last week and how they do exactly that. Well, yeah, but the reason that they do it is because it's very, very easy to get people driven to your website. And ultimately, in that model, content is king. So if you can mislead someone with a headline that doesn't necessarily speak to the truth of the actual article, it doesn't matter once they're in the door because they count as an interaction. Um, And that in itself is obviously a bit of a, a dodgy ground to be on because you end up getting people that are resentful of the content you produce but you sort of need to do that to pay the bills so the whole idea behind the patreon was that you'd have a a situation where people can fund you themselves there are no adverts on it there's no clickbait you know it's just me talking into a microphone and bringing you up to date with either what's going on with palace or, or general football but to be honest i mean i only did interviews to start with Initially, my first ever interview was with Darren Ambrose, moved on from there and have interviewed different Palace people over the last uh, three or four years. But then I sort of decided that I was going to do a daily Palace podcast because I knew that as great as it was talking to Palace personalities every few weeks, there wasn't an infinite supply of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then in September of 2020, I got above a thousand patrons, which enabled me to quit my normal job. And then because... It basically happened over a 36-hour period. My numbers went from 700 to 1,000 because I was walking to work one day. I ticked over to 700 patrons, tweeted it out and said, I'm now only 300 away from being able to do this for a living. And incredibly, it just caught fire in the way that certain things on the internet do. And over the course of the next 24 hours, it went above 1,000. A lot of those people weren't Palace fans. And I knew with the best will in the world, you know, it wasn't as if a a Spurs fan was going to stick around for more than a month or two Mm. listening to a daily Palace podcast because with all due respect, they're not going to be that interested in it. So then I started doing the general football podcast alongside it to sort of retain those listeners. And and thankfully, 
what are we now, almost two years on, and still managing to carve out a living doing it. So, yeah, that's pretty much the, the story of it, as quick as way as I can tell it. That's super exciting that you've changed, t- turned your passion from a passion into what you now say is your full-time job. And that's super exciting. I think that's a dream for every football fan, isn't it? But like you said, the industry to get into it is super hard. So carving out your own niche is kind of the ideal way. Um, Um, In terms of like your love for Palace, I was listening to your podcast. I think it was like a few weeks ago, your love letter to football. And um, you spoke about how your kind of love for, for football was formed a lot more organically than some kind of kids are these days. Like I joke a lot about Project Mbappe with my girlfriend, with the boys, and how like when I have a son or a daughter, I'm going to Project Mbappe them super hard, make them a football fan from day one. But... I was listening to you speak about how that's very different to how your love of football kind of originated. Could you kind of talk a bit about how your love of football started? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably important to highlight that my dad is as big a football fan as me. It, yeah. It's not as though he's some sort of hands-off, only watches match of the day for 20 minutes. Like, I will talk to my dad probably upwards of half hour every single day about football. Not just about Palace, but about what's going on. Uh, but as I said in the podcast, obviously, a bit of a plug if anyone hasn't listened oh, to it. Yeah. It's we'll free your available way, to listen to on Twitter. Um, it, it sort of... And I sort of credit him, really, with the way that he went about it because he didn't ram it down my throat. It wasn't a case of, I'm a football fan, so you have to be a football fan. Yeah. But he was always sort of there to guide me through it, if you see what I'm saying. So, like, I remember there was a game on when I was five or six. Chelsea were playing on the TV. And back then, what was that, 94? There was not as anywhere near as much football on the TV as there is now. Mm. So the, the fact that Chelsea were on the TV in itself was a novelty. And he was sitting in the back room of my house, my mum and dad's house, this is, watching it. And obviously, when you're a little kid you sort of take cues off your parents a lot more than when you're 20, when you don't really care what they're up to. And I could see how engrossed he was in it. And that in itself made me curious as to exactly why he was so intently watching the TV because he'd have the news on or he'd have the weather or EastEnders or whatever was on the TV and he'd sort of be paying passing attention to it. But he was watching this game of football as if his life depended on it. And obviously your dad is your hero for most people when they're a little boy or girl. Uh, And I just wanted to know what it was that he was watching and why he was so engrossed. And little things like that. There was the FA Cup final um, of 1996. Manchester United were playing Liverpool. It was a game that... remember. I don't know if you ever heard the story about the Liverpool players with the white suits when they went on the pitch before the game kicked off at Wembley and they were wearing these cream or white suits. And it was almost as if they thought they had the cup final won before the ball had been kicked. Oh, okay. It ended up, yeah, yeah, yeah. ended up with a situation where the game wasn't particularly great, but Eric Cantona scored the winner. I think it was either towards the end of 90 or in extra time. And they won 1-0 Man United. But I was seven at that point and we were at a wedding uh, and I was just getting into 
football and sort of okay. understanding what it meant in society generally, mm. particularly to men at that point. Obviously, that sounds sexist, but I think back as then, time has moved on, it's become a more inclusive game. Yeah. And I remember getting back from the service itself, and this was as a seven-year-old kid, and there were blokes crowding around the TV just watching football. No yeah. one was really talking. And obviously, throughout the wedding, everyone's chatting, everyone's congratulating the bride and groom and the, the parents of the people that were getting married, and it was all very nice. And we went back to this pub or this venue, wherever it was that this wedding took place, and there were 20 or 30 blokes just crowded around his telly. Yeah, and eyes once, glued to the screen, yeah. And once again, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, particularly as a little boy, I sort of wanted in to what you that to be was. Involved. That's it. Yeah. And, and that sort of stuff was what made me ultra, ultra curious, really, as to exactly why this got so many people so engrossed. And obviously, the summer yeah. of 96 was Euro 96, which was in this country. Again, another little story, and I'm sort of going through my own head here, just off the top That's of my cool. brain. We were at Legoland, and the first game of the Euros, England were playing Switzerland. And we were there with some family friends. And my dad and the guy that we were with, who was the parent of the other two children we were with, had recorded it on a VHS. So they were trying to avoid the score all the way through. We were in a queue to go on a ride at Legoland. And this bloke had a radio. Alan Shearer scored after two minutes, I think it was, and just went mad in the queue. And then every bloke around him was just asking him what had happened and he was telling him. And once again, you know, you're a seven-year-old kid and you think this is is something. This is not just normal life. And I think that has been a thread that has continued throughout, really, and it's just grown. Yeah, I I really think the way that a lot of people get into football is an accumulation of events like that. It's the special moments that you do remember, like the wedding, like Legoland, which have built you into the person that loves football today. And everyone has their own unique backstories to yeah. why they love football and their own special moments. So it's just brilliant. I yeah, I mean, I, I, sorry, I would say as well, school is a huge part of it for me. Yeah. Because it, it it's another thing where, and I, I don't want to say you have to like football to be you know, popular or have friends, but it, but it, it undoubtedly helps because yeah. it will set you apart from certain mates and, it will group you in with others that support the same team you do. And it all becomes like a big soap opera with ever moving parts, if you see yeah. what I mean. So you're allowed into something that, you know, it will be the same now. Obviously, I'm well out of school, but like you're going on a Monday morning and the first thing people used to talk about was what happened on Saturday and Sunday. And it gives you that routine and that structure. And I think it's something that I often say, I feel sorry for the people that aren't involved in it to a proper level because I feel like they're missing out on a core part of of what having you know that tribal nature to you is you know it is a pleasant thing to do most of the time and it like provides you a fallback like you could enter an unknown space with unknown people and you can always think nine out of ten times I could pluck up a conversation about football and that would bed me in and I'd just lose those nerves about oh, how do I approach these people? What do we talk about? That's always a good kind of fallback on. I think in recent years as well, especially with England's success, you've seen a lot of people moving towards the football sphere as is, um, just because they want to be involved. And then through that, they're actually getting involved in the game. Like we've had a mate who's got really into a, a fantasy Premier League 
just yeah. through hanging around with us lot during the Euros and the World Cup and everything. So it is, do you know what I mean? It's an ever-growing space and the success of uh, England men and women's team is only uh, bolstering that. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the Premier League is is ubiquitous in itself. I mean, it's there to be watched or sort of soaked up. And as much as I might moan about Twitter at times, it does give people that freedom to dip their toe in or, or go completely in and be immersed in it. And obviously that has some negative impacts because you get people on football Twitter that can go too far the other way. Yeah. But I mean, in general, I think it's just something that, I just, I just love football. I, I know that sounds like a very easy thing and an obvious thing to say, but for me, if I've been obsessed with something from the age of seven until 33, then that's probably a good reason for it. Yeah, you know? there's no other word to describe it really apart yeah, from obsession. I am a genuinely, I'm a fanatic for football. Yeah. Obviously, Palace are the primary reason for it, but it sort of, it spawns different interests. You know, I, I sort of pride myself on being able to strike a conversation with anyone, whether they're a Swindon fan, whether they're a Luton fan, a Man United fan. And I can sort of tell within two or three minutes of talking to someone that says they like football, whether or not they just watch Match of the Day and look at the back page of the Sun, or whether they do actually involve themselves in the sport. And I think going is certainly something that that differentiates this sort of casual football fan from one that will embed themselves in it completely. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, you've got a Arsenal fan in myself and a QPR fan in Luke, so we're a bit all over the place. But we can talk about that another time. One thing I wanted to talk about, following when you brought up the '96 Euros and you were at Legoland, um, the '97 playoffs. Obviously, you're known as on Twitter is Hopkin looking to curl one, and that's from. Palace playing Sheffield United in 97 playoffs. Um, do you remember? So you must have been about eight, nine at that point. Yeah. Do you remember what you were doing on that? Well, I wasn't day? actually there. So here's the mad thing about it. it. It's weird because obviously the goal itself is now synonymous with the Twitter page, and yeah. the podcast and everything else. But what I wanted when creating the name for the Twitter page was something that had an emotional attachment for Palace fans. Yeah. And regardless of whether they just got into supporting the club, whether they'd been going 50 years, it was a playoff final goal in the 90th minute. The game was nil-nil at the time. Terrible game of football, yeah, by the yeah. way. Uh, and he's put it top corner and we got promoted to the Premier League. And obviously the commentary itself, David Hopkin, little tiny gap and then looking at Cole one as it hits the back of the net, it's iconic. Yeah. Uh, and that in itself was really the main reason why I chose that goal, not because, you know, it was the moment for me that crystallised my love of the football club. It just went very well with what I wanted to sort of symbolise with uh, the Twitter page. Yeah, someone like has actually three or top one Palace moment yeah, for someone everyone has actually than yourself. said in recent times, had the blog been, or the podcast as it is now, had that had been founded in, say, 2015, it'd probably be called Zaha, oh yes. But I mean, that is... <laughs> yeah. Part and parcel of the ever-changing sort of yeah. patterns of football, I guess. I mean, QPR had one pretty similar with Zamora in, in the oh, last minute. Yeah, exactly. I tried to call the podcast Zamora, <laughs> but Ros wouldn't have it. Um, well, you know, you've got a different set set of fan bases. That you're yeah, yeah, we have to give. Yeah. Um, 
I think we'll move on to Crystal Palace and talking about uh, their preseason, last season, and their um, expectations for this season. Obviously, last season you had Vieira come in very early, um, and I think he was favourite to be sacked before Christmas. And what a season you had, really, with with the squad you had, such a youthful squad with such exciting players, which was new for Palace as well, because under Roy it was kind of a lot of um, it was known en- entities, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was prem proven, kind of late in their career. So but Vieira kind of freshened up the squad. And at that point, everyone... Vieira had just come off of kind of like an up and down time previous to Palace. And so what was your kind of first thoughts when... Not Vieira linked with the job, but when he got the job, what were you thinking? Well, I mean, I don't know how well you remember that period of time because it's just over a year ago now. But prior to Vieira coming in, we were very heavily linked with Lucien Favre. Yeah. Um, and that was at the final stages of being done. Like, it got to the stage where he'd said yes and we'd started the visa process. Uh, And then he got cold feet and pulled out. And I'm not going to lie, myself, pretty much every other Palace fan, were devastated by that because he's a manager with huge pedigree who we really thought was a great coup for the club. And then to have that fall apart at the final moment was pretty uh, grim. And then the Patrick Vieira stuff, there was no real rumour about it before it actually happened. It, it got broken by David Ornstein that he was going to be appointed. And there was no suggestion of it beforehand. It was just, right, well, Palace aren't getting Lucy and Favre. It's all systems go with Patrick Vieira and on, on we go. Uh, and I'm not going to blow my own trump here, but you can imagine there were a fair few Palace fans that were genuinely concerned about exactly yeah. what was going to happen because... At that point, we had the oldest squad or one of the oldest squads in the league. There were a huge number of players out of contract. Mm. The football that we played under Roy, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months of his time with us, was the opposite of inspiring, let's just say that. And I I think the the size of the job was such that it just seemed like it would be too big for almost anyone. It seemed like it would be beyond him because obviously his managerial experience up to that point was fairly limited it was pretty low brow um wasn't probably known for overhauling a squad um stamping an identity so it was something new to him but i think that's something that like kind of caught everyone off guard obviously his how quickly he could stamp his identity on that team yeah and for me personally oh no yeah continue go go for it well that's so I was just going to say, in relation, it's, it, it, I don't want to do down Roy Hodgson here. And some people have been a bit critical of me amongst the Palace fan base because they feel like I take pot shots at him. But it's not really what I'm trying to say when I when I put this across. Roy Hodgson's yeah. time at the club had, had run its course in the yeah. sense of he came in, we needed a stabilising hand. He did exactly that. For the first 18 months, things were great. He had a, a very good squad, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and Wilf and Mishi Batshuayi and yeah. Johan Kabay. There was good footballers there. Um, but the last 12 to 18 months, it was very much as if he'd have been happy with 38 nil-nil draws. Okay. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it would have kept us in the league, but there's sort of a balance to be had between being stoic and reliable and going to football and still enjoying the football that you're yeah, watching as a fan. 100%. You don't want to throw... 
complete caution to the wind, but you want to go there and be entertained a little bit. Yeah, and, 100%. And there was such a lack of that with Roy that we were desperate for some sort of hope and a blueprint for what could be done better. And there were plenty of people that were saying, be careful what you wish for, you know, what are you expecting? Your palace, you'll just get relegated. And, you know, you're quite right. Vieira was favourite to be uh, first sacked by pretty much every single bookmaker. Uh, so the fact that, you know, he came in and, and was able to stamp his authority so quickly is impressive. But I think genuinely, for players like Wilfried Zaha, for Mark Gay, for Abir Eze, you have to remember, Roy Hodgson is, at that point, a 73-year-old man. He doesn't yeah, have yeah, the yeah. connection with those lads. Whereas they've all grown up yeah. watching Premier League football. They saw Vieira. They yeah, know what 100%. he did with France and with Arsenal. And that respect, as soon as he got in the door enabled him to get across his tactical ideas, I think. Yeah, you know, can't play one him... touch, one bounce with Roy Hodgson, bless him. Well, you, I mean, don't get me wrong, you could, but I just think... <laughs> I've it... seen some clips as would suggest that otherwise. Clip, that clip of him at Watford where he like does like a fucking lofted through ball. It's incredible, <laughs> it's isn't it? Yeah, I could play that now. Yeah. Well, were you talking about um, how you'd rather a, a bit more of inspiring football? I don't want to liken it too much to Arsenal, but... Obviously, we went from Emery to Arteta and everyone, like with Palace's situation where they're saying, oh, be careful what you wish for, because Emery did all right and then we got rid of him. But I think amongst the Arsenal fans, or most of them, they would say that the football was so uninspiring that we'd rather take the risk on a project, on a potential identity that we could get behind rather than this kind of flat, uninspiring football that might get us top four, might get us an occasional trophy. We'd rather a bit more of an identity and something that we can believe in. I think that's obviously not totally the same for Palace, but not too dissimilar. Yeah, I think often, I mean, it's not anyone's fault necessarily, but you do often get fan bases by their very definition, they're not going to live and breathe what other clubs are doing. So an Everton fan isn't going to care about Newcastle and their style of play. They're just going to look at Newcastle and say, you deserve to be there in the pecking order. Similarly, other big clubs like your Manchester United and Liverpools aren't going to look at Arsenal and go, well, you deserve to be challenging for titles. You deserve to have, you know, fantastic football. You're sitting there in the European places. What more do you want? And yeah. I think that is part and parcel of the lack of care that other people have for other people's football clubs. But if you're the one that's going every week and you live and breathe that club, then you know what you want. And yeah, if you so. own that and you can say, we tried something, it didn't work, but at least we had a go. And then don't blame those that have, have put their faith in a new project then you know, you're always opening yourself up to the potential for something better. You look at Arsene Wenger, prime example, You know, yeah. completely untested, ended up being the greatest manager potentially in the club's history. So yeah, 100%, 100%. You have to take a punt sometimes. Yeah, you do, 100%. And while we're talking about kind of the top lot, uh, the big six, Palace last year, they absolutely had some big results against the top six. So we're Man talking City about Arsenal. In particular. Drew against Arsenal, two all, and then beat us 3-0. Should have beat you at the Emirates. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Scraped to last minute equaliser. Um, Spurs, you beat three nil. Uh, who was that? Was that Edward Hattrick? Yeah, that no, was he insane. got two. He scored with his. Well, I always say scored with his first touch, and then you get little jobs with it. Say he touched the ball just before oh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then didn't lose to City as well. That's massive. Didn't concede to City. Yeah, that's crazy. So um, 2-0, yeah. Yeah, it's just... Com- so, talking about Palace and what we expect for the season, obviously, you've lost Conor Gallagher, which is a huge loss because he had an amazing season for you. Who do you see stepping into that role? Because I, I don't think Vieira will be changing systems, but who who do you think can fill that, that position that he's going to leave? Well, we've signed Czech Decore from Lons. I'm not sure if you know a great deal about him. but I've he's... seen in pre-season, he's been playing some absolute beautiful passes. Yeah, he is basically, and I'm a little bit reluctant to say this because it's an obvious thing to say, but he's basically like a Patrick Vieira regen. Um, you know, someone that will run with the ball, look to advance play, but still sits in front of the back four, can yeah. tackle, can screen can break the lines with passes. You don't want to get too carried away because pre-season is pre-season, but everyone I've spoken to who has watched a lot of French football over the last couple of years tell me that he is the absolute, you know, cast-iron guarantee of success. And I think it's a little bit of a strange one. We've spent eight years-ish being told that we're a one-man team with Wilfred Zaha. All of a sudden, Conor Gallagher comes into the (laughs) setup, And then all of a sudden, because we've lost Conor, we're not going to be successful this season. So I'm always you know, reluctant to sort of put too many eggs in one particular player's basket. But I do think Ibirieze is someone who, towards the back end of Roy's last season, which would have been the 2020-21 campaign, he obviously picked up that injury. Yeah. He spent the lion's share of last season getting back up to full speed. And obviously, given the fact that he is our permanent player and Conor Gallagher was on loan, most Palace fans would far rather see a Bireze flourish than Conor Gallagher be facilitated inside. And I don't think if Conor Gallagher was playing alongside a Bireze every week, it would have necessarily worked. Whereas if you've got a more defensive-minded player in Czech Decore sitting yeah. there at the base of the midfield, you can potentially play as, as an out-and-out 10 with Zaha and Elise Arebioui on either side of him. And I yeah. think that probably is a lot more balanced uh, than what we actually had last season. Yeah, obviously, as a QPR fan, I've seen a lot of Ibireze. Um, Hoping to see him on Saturday at the uh, the friendly, Um, but yeah, just an absolutely phenomenal player, a a player who really you watch him get the ball and he just seems to have so much time on it, and that's not because of the opposition. That's because he just allows himself to generate space. and I'm really excited for him to get a full season because I believe he was in the uh, extended England squad for that Euros uh, before he picked up that injury. Yeah, I um, think he got the call on. So it's a bit of a mad story that he did the training session where he picked up the injury. It happened. He got taken to the medical facility. They then took him to hospital. He got told that he was out for however long it was. Got home opened his phone and had a text from England saying he'd been called up to the provisional squad, which that, is yeah. incredible, it's, really. It's gotten because as a QPR fan, I know exactly what he's capable of. Um, but in, in a broader basis, you've got such a young, exciting squad. You've got players like Eze, uh, Mark Gay. You've got Elise as well, who came on leaps and bounds last season. Uh, obviously, you've added Ducore. Uh, you've added Sam Johnston as well, which is a phenomenal coup um, because he, he's been fantastic for West Brom. And uh, I think every Premier League club was sniffing around him uh, when his contract was coming up. 
um, and Malcolm Abay as well. Um, he looks a menacingly, uh, yeah, just friendly. Some just phenomenal like, yeah. business by uh, Palace this summer, and you must just be so excited to get, and waiting for the season just to get going. Yeah, we um we've actually or it's about to be announced. Chris Richards is signing from, from Bayern, Bayern Munich yeah. as well. And yeah. I, I, to be honest, I'm not one of those people that will pretend to be across every single player in world football mm. because I think you can come unstuck very quickly if you yeah. try to present that image of yourself. Uh, but when the rumours first sort of picked up a few days back, started doing some pretty serious research into him. And the more I read about him, the more natural fit it feels for us because he's a big lad, but he's quick. He can play with both feet, primarily yeah, a centre-back, but he can play on the left and the right. Yeah. So I think it gives us the option to play potentially a back three with wing-backs. It gives us the option to have backup to Gay and Anderson. Obviously, he's going to want to get into the Qatar World Cups world for the US. So yeah. another very clever signing from the club, I think. And he, I think he's signing a five-year deal at 22. So, you know, it's, it's not as though we're only going to have him for a couple of years and then have to wave goodbye. Uh, yeah. But it is, you're quite right, just a very, very exciting time to be a Palace fan. I mean, you mentioned Michael Elise. Obviously, I love Ebbs to bits, don't get me wrong. But Michael Elise is incredible. I, I, I've never seen a player at Palace at the age that he is be as good as he is. And obviously, yeah, we've had North come through. Young. Yeah, I, I've never seen anything like it, lads. Yeah. Honestly, he's one of those players, that if he was at Man City now or at Man United, people would be talking about him as a potential future Ballon d'Or winner because mm, yeah. he doesn't have a weak spot, really, other than maybe his strength at his age, but obviously that can be worked on. Yeah, his game is just flawless and he has such poise on the ball. I've never seen him get flustered. You know, if you look, you mentioned that Man City game a minute ago, Yeah, the 2-0 win. The second goal of that game is Michael Elise to a T because... And it, it sort of speaks to the different mentality that Patrick Vieira has brought about because we were 1-0 up with five minutes to go and he put Michael on, which is ridiculous, really. It's the sort of thing that Roy Hodgson wouldn't yeah. have done in a million years. Yeah, never. But he picked the ball up on the edge of our box. He ran with it. He dragged two men out of position, got towards the edge of the box, played it over to Wilf. Wilf played it back to him. And it's the most simple pass you could possibly make, but he's executed it with such poise it's just a little cushion for Conor Gallagher, but it's right into Conor's path. It basically comes across the box to him and he just cushions it as if he's just there to set him up and he put the ball in the back of the net. Trust me, go and find it on YouTube and you'll see exactly what I mean. But this is a kid that had come on away at Man City two minutes before and there's just no nerves to him. He's just yeah, like, I'm here to do this job great. and I've yeah. got it in the back. And put that's my mark on this game. Put my mark on this five minutes of the game. I yeah, like that. and he'll yeah, like just that. do it every single week. Yeah. He did it a lot for Red in, in the championship. And obviously that's what turned Palace on to him a lot. I, I think there was a lot of clubs who were very excited for him. And Palace done very well uh, finalising that transfer. Yeah, for James um, as well. Before we sort of wrap up, um, Palace have had a bit of a weird pre-season though because half the squad's gone away and half the squad's remained I think due to vaccinations and things like that um, so they played like a, it's about six games but like three yeah. and three because um, yeah I was looking at their Twitter and they did you have like two friendlies in a day because I saw you playing yeah. United yeah, and then played, like you had another friendly we played Man United the other morning because it's yeah. obviously in Australia it was at the MCG 
and then we played Gillingham in the evening. Yeah, yeah, I was getting well confused. I was like, how have you got two games on the same day? But yeah. I saw, obviously, um, Luke Plange. He scored a hat-trick versus Ipswich. Um, he obviously joined Derby last season on loan. Um, and he got three goals and eight for them, which is quite impressive for such a young lad uh, in such a struggling side. Um, is he one to look out for? I would hope so. I mean, obviously, I've only seen him in Palace colours in pre-season, so you can't really get a solid grip of whether or not he's Premier League ready. I think from the noises that are coming out of the football club, he's more likely to go on loan to the Championship again this season than Ebi Owe is. I think Ebi Owe is looked upon as someone that can come off the bench and make a genuine difference almost immediately for us on that right-hand side. Uh, but who knows? You know, If he continues to play well in pre-season and score goals, then Patrick Vieira might well decide uh, that he is someone that can be of use to the 25-man squad. Yeah. In relation to uh, the split squads with pre-season, I'm not 100% sure what the thinking behind it is, but I would imagine that the, as far as I'm aware, the tour was signed off and agreed pre-COVID. Uh, and obviously, Patrick Vieira has come in since then. It's something that we were contractually obliged to do. And that's why the lion's share of the first team players have actually stayed back in England and quite a youthful group have gone over to the other side of the world. But you could spin it in a positive sense in that Patrick Vieira is having a lot of time up close and personal with those youth players. Because yeah. if you haven't got them when you've got your Zahas and your Eze's, you're always going to err on the side of caution and play those players rather yeah. than throwing in people that you otherwise wouldn't. So really, it may well serve us well across the entire campaign because a couple of kids that maybe wouldn't have got minutes otherwise might be brought into the first team squad because Vieira can trust them because he's seen what they can do at close quarters, or at least that's why I'm sort of telling myself. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Um, before we let you go, what what are your expectations for this season? Um, because obviously, like we said, fantastic transfer window. Exciting cup yet. run last year as well as semi-finals of the FA Cup. Are you expecting a cup run or a decent league run? What are you hoping for? I mean, obviously you don't want to expect semis or finals yeah, and cups yeah. when you're a Palace fan. It would be lovely. And I think it's key to point out that prior to Patrick Vieira coming in, I think it was something like six straight cup competitions that we'd gone out in the first round. Roy Hodgson just did not care about cups. And I don't necessarily blame him because he had a job to do to keep us in the league and he yeah. did that. But once again, it speaks to the lack of romance and enjoyment that we had during that <laughs> period. I think, obviously... The overall ambition is to try and push towards the European places this season. Not necessarily, you know, Europa League, but maybe sneak into a Conference League position. Uh, I actually saw the other day, in the nine years since we were promoted in 2013, we've finished between 10th and 15th every single year. So as much as we get put amongst the relegation candidates year after year, we've been pretty solid in terms of our overall league placing for the most part. I can't see us finishing below about 14th. You know, as much as obviously you don't want to count your chickens before they've hatched, I think the squad is that good and the tactical yeah. ideology has worked that well in the first year that you would hope there would just be a little bit more in the way of progression this season. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to predict that we're going to finish in Europe because you can't say for sure. So, Well, I think uh, so. I we're going to do a bit of a predictions for the Prem, but I've got Palace finishing... 
eighth or ninth in my yeah, opinion. I think anything uh, above sort of tenth would be yeah. a great great finish for Palace. Um especially if they can contend with the likes of like West Ham, Leicester, New maybe, New Money, Newcastle, yeah. Yeah, maybe even Wolves if if they can turn their, their sort of fortunes yeah. around and play a bit more exciting football. But um obviously the the, the age of the squad allows you to sort of have those years where you're there and thereabouts without worrying too much because even if you don't keep those players you're going to sell them on for for a decent amount of money which given palace's recent transfers will be well invested yeah i think that is really the business model you know as much as you don't want to sound defeatist about it we need to be realistic and players like abire Eze and michael elise say they're not coming to palace to stay here for their entire careers they're coming to be given a decent platform to play yeah. in the Premier League, to play progressive football, and then, you know, move on to bigger clubs in the footballing food chain. But, I mean, you take Michael Elisa as a prime example. He cost us £8 million. And, you know, a year on, way, you're way, looking way, at... Way any, if anyone's paying us less than 40 or 45, you feel yeah. like they've robbed us. I mean, so, you look at Jack Grealish to City for 100 million. Exactly. Um, he only really had a good one good season in the Premier League with Villa and that skyrocketed his 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 valuation. Yeah, and he's um, English. But and there's no reason think, it can yeah, happen, like you said, Elise, happen uh, with Eze right. or Elise, you know what I mean? Even Mark Gay yeah, as well, yeah. phenomenal defender and very exciting times. Yeah, I mean, take Chris Richards, the one we're about to sign as a prime example. You know, he's a 22-year-old that's comfortable on either foot, can play across the back four, has pace, has all the attributes you'd really need to be a success in the Premier League. Even if he just plays regularly for a year or two, I think the overall fee, including add-ons, is something like £13 million. So, you know, if you're a 24, 25-year-old defender, by the time two or three years have passed, and you've played regularly in, a, in an upwardly mobile Premier League side, you're going to be commanding 30 or 40 million quid. It's just yeah, a guarantee. 100%. So it's a very sound business model. Obviously, it's going to be a bit heart-wrenching when we have to wave goodbye to your Michael Elise's and your Abirieses. But as you just mentioned, you would assume that the recruitment team will invest that money properly. And I think that's the difference now compared to a few years back, really. Yeah, I'm still not over Eze leaving, so thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> um, yeah, it, do you know what, Dan? It's been absolutely it's fantastic been so nice having to you have a on. Chat. And I really would love to have you back on Happy some point during the season. Yeah, hopefully when Palace are top of the league. Well, you know, we might we might surprise a few. I don't yeah, I don't know about definitely. a title. I don't know about a Leicester City esque push. But yeah, got to shove twenty on before the season starts. So yeah, well, we got Arsenal, we've got Arsenal first day, haven't we? So yeah, that's... yeah, we yeah yeah we do. Yeah, hopefully yeah. hopefully Ros will be in tears. <laughs> Well, to be honest, I actually feel like Arsenal are going to be a very tough nut to crack this season, but we might catch you a bit cold. Who knows? All right. Yeah. One thing before you go, who you got winning the league and who you got as bottom place? I think you can't really look beyond the City. You know, they won it last year, added Haaland. Yeah, Haaland to Joe. I mean, to, to sort of examine our two games against them last season, obviously the 2-0 win was a great result. They will always caveat it with the fact they got a man sent off towards the back end of the first half. We were already 1-0 up at that point, so I sort of take that with a pinch of salt, but I can understand where they're coming from. The 0-0 draw at Sellhurst, they were very, very wasteful. You know, as much as we defended with our lives, I think they should have really scored three or four. 
And if you throw someone like Erling Haaland into that setup, given how prolific he is, I, I just can't see anyone living with City, really. I mean, yeah, Julian I Alvarez played last night and he was an absolute revelation for yeah. him as well. So, I mean, I, look at Zinchenko. He's, he's left Man City. He's a fantastic yeah. footballer. And yet he couldn't get regular minutes in their side. And, and that's the levels that you're talking about. Yeah, so well, that I, I would can't... be my only worries about City. It's their outgoings, uh, big names like Zinchenko, Sterling, Jesus. But like you said, their squad is so stacked that maybe they can lose those players and still walk the league pretty easily. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong. Like, obviously, Liverpool are there or there about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think, I mean, I actually said it on the podcast this morning, funny enough. I don't, and this isn't me trying to be a Liverpool fanboy here by any means, but I don't think that the job that Jurgen Klopp has done over the last few years and how close they've been to Manchester City gets the respect that it should. Mm. Because to all intents and purposes, you look at the money that's been spent, you look at the quality of the players Man City have got, they should be a runaway train. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that they've kept on to their coattails throughout is genuinely admirable for me. And, oh, you know, it hasn't been the case that Chelsea have been able to do that or Manchester United or Arsenal. So I think this year might be the one where we see City win it by 10 or 11 points. Not I because Liverpool are rubbish, but just because, you know, it's, it's so very, good. very difficult to keep up with. I think they're also going through a period of transition, Liverpool. Obviously, they lost Mane and they're sort of transitioning to this uh, formation where they're going to play with an out-and-out striker which they haven't really had for a while. So perhaps this is City's title before the season even started. But as we know, the Premier League cannot be predicted. So, um, yeah, before you go, who you got finishing bottom? I would probably have to say, I mean, obviously, I don't want to get fans of that particular club on my neck, but there's only about 12 of them anyway. So (laughs) Bournemouth. Because yeah, we've got. Yeah. with all due respect to them, you know, you, you look at the size of their club without Eddie Howe. I know Scott Parker is Scott Parker and he's had a crack at it before. But I, I, the strength of the division now is, is so big that if you're going to come in, like you see the way Nottingham Forest have gone about their business this summer. Yeah, It's impressive in itself. And I genuinely feel like Steve Cooper is one of the best coaches working in the game today. Um, Fulham similarly... You know, you could argue they might finish bottom, but you would hope that this time they might work it out and Mitrovic might be able to turn his 170 goals a season in the Championship yeah. into 10 or 15 in the Prem. I, I mean, you could make cases for the likes of Brentford or, I, I don't know, like, I think Bournemouth yeah, are just the easy option, really. Yeah. You know, like we this last out of week. The releg- out of the just promoted teams has been the least inspiring. So that's I like mean, what their we... transfer activity has been pretty much stagnant. Yeah. They haven't really made any additions or anything that's going to really catch your eye. So if I you think, want to be yeah. completely left field, and this is just coming to me off the top of my head, is Everton. Because, oh, yeah, they look bad, don't they? I mean, I know it's a friendly and they, they've lost a... The, Minnesota 4-0 last night, but they've lost Richarlison. Yeah, if you haven't. talk to any Everton fan, without him, they were gone. It's yeah. as simple as that. And I don't think they can invest a great deal of that because of financial fair play. So, yeah. I, I don't... This isn't me you know, coming across as some sort of anti-Lampard hater, but I'm just not sure it's going to work, if you see what I, I mean. I mean, they finished the season playing Alex Awobi right wing back, so I think that says all it needs to say. And obviously, uh, from my own personal perspective, I hope it's Brighton, but I don't think there's a chance of that. Yeah, no, I think Graham Potter's, Potter's uh, is, is good man, uh, good yeah. manager, yeah. 
You do well. Anyway, Dan, it's been absolutely amazing yeah, having we'll you on. You no Thank you so much. Um, do you want to plug your socials on your Patreon before you leave? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm on HLTCO on Twitter. And if you want to look at the Patreon, I record a daily Palace podcast Monday to Friday and a daily general football one Monday to Friday as well. £2.50 for each of them or £4 for both. I like to think it's relatively good value for money. So it's a roundup yeah. of the game in 20 minutes each morning so you can go about your day. Um, and other than that, yeah, follow me on Twitter or don't. If you don't like me, it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> He's really popular with Stan Collymore, so that says all it needs to say. Been blocked for 12 years. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> we'll get Thank there one day. Thank you so much, Stan. Stan we really appreciate pleasure, it. Mate. <laughs> no worries. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Speak soon. Cheers, mate. All good, mate.